Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to the Webby Podcast, where we share the stories of the internet in more than five-word speeches. Uh... (laughs) Monkey covering eyes emoji. Thanks. I can't stand short speeches. We're pretty, pretty, pretty grateful. Bitch better have my Monet. Here's your host, David Michelle Davies. There's a lot of things people didn't think would ever work on the internet. They used to say no one would ever buy clothes on the web or no one would ever watch movies on their computer. But I think at the top of the list of things that no one would supposedly ever do online, buy art on the Internet. My guest this week, Carter Cleveland, saw it just the opposite. And after studying computer science at Princeton and then doing some intern stints at Citigroup and NASA, at the age of just 22, he started Artsy, now one of the largest collections of contemporary art on the Internet and probably actually in the world, with more than 500,000 artworks from 50,000 artists. In this conversation, Carter was a great guide to the art world and how it's been transformed by the internet. We also talked a bunch about data and how important the intersection of art and science is at Artsy. Carter Cleveland, founder of Artsy, welcome to the Webby Podcast. Is it fair to say that this intersection between art and science is a big part of the ethos of Artsy? Um, well, first of all, thank you so much for, for having me, David. It's an honor uh, to be here. Um, <clears throat> yeah, in fact, I would say uh, art and science is actually one of our five uh, core values uh, of the company. So it's something that we believe in very deeply, you know, both in our, our day-to-day, right, on the very literal level. We are, we are bringing uh, art online into this technological context that makes it more accessible to a broader audience. But I'd say even kind of at the very abstract level, if you look at the people who, who join Artsy, you know, we tend to, and I think some people, they're more comfortable on sort of one uh, end of the spectrum or the other, like, hey, I just love technology. Those kind of artsy people, they're a little wild and crazy. They say one thing, they do another. You can't trust them. You know, on the other side, it's like those tech people that are trying to put everything into boxes. And, you know, we, we really attract people that just are like, oh, man, I'm so turned on by by bringing those two worlds um, together. And, and, I'm, and I'm so excited to discover that kind of that magic that exists between two seemingly um, orthogonal uh, universes. So it, it really cuts the core of everything we do. And, I, you know, I touched on there in the intro, it it does, I mean, even your personal story, I think it sort of uh, seems touch, touches on that. Or yeah. I mean, it, you studied computer science and mm-hmm. you're running an art site. I mean, it, you couldn't sort of get more <laughs> on the nose. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, when we when we defined our, our values, you know, we involved, you know, every single person on the team, you know, we asked them, what does Artsy do differently than other companies? What does Artsy do that makes you proud? What do your colleagues do that you really admire? And, you know, we were probably 40, 50 people at the time, and we generated 40 pages of single space feedback that eventually, you know, we kept hearing the same themes over and over and over again, and art meets science was one of them. Um, you know, I, I, I think it's, 
it, you want to be uh, conscious of when a company's values are really just the founder's values. And I think in our case, art meets science really was just very core to who we are. But yeah, it resonates incredibly strongly with me. You know, personally, I, I was I was very lucky. You know, my uh, you know growing up, my dad um, would take me to galleries, to museums. Um, you know, there's a photo of me. Uh, on my Facebook, and my mom posted for my birthday of her, like, with me in one arm and then a paddle in the other. She's bidding at, like, a Sotheby's auction, you know, <laughs> like, with like, a little baby and baby in the other arm. So that was me getting my introduction to the art world. Um, and then, you know, but my, my mom, every day on the way to school, was quizzing me on math problems, right? So I was, from a very young age, I was really engaged in math. I, you know, I went to, you know, did a lot of math competitions, went to Princeton originally because they had the best physics program in the world. My goal is to be a theoretical physicist <laughs> growing up um, but I always loved art and um, you know took a lot of art history and then yeah it was senior year when I uh, was looking around um, online and I was just sort of shocked that I there was no single website with all the world's art on it I, I just kept looking it just felt like a really obvious thing that should from a sort of from a physics perspective from a first principles um, perspective like you know there's a site with all the world's music on it you know like SoundCloud um, you can go to YouTube to see all the videos art, right? And uh, I was looking for it both to like find art to buy for my for my dorm room. Um, but you know, also just to try and follow up on a lot of the art history I was learning in class, you know, eventually you want to find more images than you can just get in your textbook. Um, so that was really where Artsy actually it really is kind of the cliche story of a company that was birthed in a, in a in a dorm room, I just thought it should exist. And I was sort of shocked when I find out that it didn't. And how did um, how does the how do you think the the art and science connection expresses itself to people at home who are or anywhere who are using the site as users or consumers or whatever we're calling totally? I mean, I think on the most like literal level, uh, if you're reading about art today, you're most likely actually reading about it um, in one of our articles. So I think in in many ways, there's just this very literal experience of art on the internet. You know, where the our content, our our, our editorial, our articles were the fastest growing. Um, publication in the art industry and if you actually look at our daily emails we have the highest open rates of any content company in the world at this point so i think we've been really successful in terms of creating really engaging content that's very art forward it's these big images you know of art that will show up in your facebook feed or when your friends are you know are, are sharing with you over email um i think as you get deeper into the artsy experience the science side starts to um become more and more present. So for instance, um, as you start to click through an article and maybe you click through to a certain artwork or artist that you saw, other artworks or artists will be recommended beneath it as you scroll down. And the way we do that is actually pretty sophisticated. Um, your standard uh, recommendation algorithms, you know, most famously pioneered by Amazon is collaborative filtering which operates on the principle of, you know, birds of the same feather fly together, which is if your friends like this thing, you'll probably like this thing too. That works really well when you're selling like razor blades and there's, you know, a billion of them and there's a million people who buy them, right? But if you have unique objects that breaks down, so how do I how do I know if you'll like this artwork? Because um, there's when, not there's not as much data on any visual piece. Well, and also and they're, they're each one is unique, related. right? Okay, so yeah. if I have like a hundred friends who all like the same razor blade, then they'll know to recommend me that razor blade. Right, because a hundred of my friends like the same one. Right, uh, that's because there's just a small number of razor blades, but they're produced millions of times. Right. Whereas art is the opposite. There's a large number of of unique artworks, and generally speaking, you know, except for prints and multiples of photography, which have small limited editions, artworks are unique. Mm -hmm. So the the right work for me that I'm most likely to fall in love with. Maybe a few of my friends have seen it, right? But it's a much, much, much sparser graph. So your traditional recommendation algorithms. <clears throat> excuse me, your, your more traditional recommendation algorithms, collaborative filtering breakdown. 
So if you're going to be recommending unique objects uh, to people, you're operating on a much sparser graph of information. Um, and, and so you need to develop ways of showing similarity between two objects in a database that don't necessarily have a bunch of humans that have interacted with both of them. So you have to look at more intrinsic qualities. And so this, you know, you mentioned earlier, you know, talk about the Art Genome Project. This is a nice segue. Um, we actually employ a whole team of art, his, art historians um, who look at every artwork, uh, every artist, and uh, in similar to how, as I actually was inspired by how Pandora does the Music Genome Project, they categorize them based on what we call genes. So these are uh, art historical characteristics like cubism or abstract expressionism or pop art, but also visual characteristics, um, you know, like like conceptual ideas like decay or nostalgia or childhood or, you know, a late night favor on artsy is, of course, the erotic gene. So the point is any way you can imagine a human um, engaging with or assigning like connection or meaning, you know, visually, emotionally, psychologically to an artwork, we have a gene that captures that. And are those are those concepts and ideas that like have always existed in the art world that's and that you guys question. plucked or, or pulled forward, or did you have to like sort of? My guess is sort yeah, of that's a, mix, a really right? uh, that's that's a really great question. So obviously these these genes are important because they are the basis for for you know the human input is what the genes are, and then we you know what the scores are for each gene. So you know Andy Warhol is a hundred in pop art, uh -huh. but another artist that might be more tertiary to pop art might be more of like a sixty you know or seventy. Um, and so, you know, and that, that's the basis for how we, sh we, we um, do actually a pretty good job at this point of saying, hey, if you like this, here's another related work. It almost feels like you're scrolling through art history a little bit, but across both time and space. Uh, and now your question of, uh, you know, these genes are these all plucked from our history or something new? That's a really good question. So obviously anything that people are, you know, very familiar with from their art history classes, you know, you're going to find in there. Um, so we started off uh, with just taking all the kind of canonized art historical movements and putting them in the database. Then you add in certain regions and, you know, a few other things. But we actually found that that really doesn't get you anywhere near uh, as deep as you need to be to provide really good uh, recommendations. And so then we kind of developed, you know, first of all, we just said, what are like basic human emotions and concepts? Like they all need, you know, mortality. Right? I mean, that's how you get these beautiful connections where you can go from like, you know, like a renaissance, um, you know, scene that maybe has some elements of someone um, dying or considering their own death all the way through to like contemporary, you know, Damien Hirst uh, skull, right? That, that, that's, those concepts allow you to make these really interesting like cross time, cross space, these interesting like space time connections that you wouldn't otherwise have made. But beyond these kind of emotional psychological concepts, what we really started to do was think about, okay, if you look at contemporary art today, what are, you know, no art historian wants to say what is the next art movement like today because it's it's kind of a bold move. You know, it's it's, it's something that typically you want to look back over the last 50 years. We don't have any such luxury. Our, we have our users, we have people coming to Artsy today and they want to be able to discover, you know, contemporary art and see the connections of contemporary art. So we do something that the way I think about it is essentially like science fiction art history so it's almost like pretend it's the year 2050 uh, and you're looking back at 2016 or at the time, I guess, 2012. Um, what looking back, what effectively were those trends, those emerging things that are going to become the major art historical movements, you know, when you're looking back and see so a lot of really interesting things, you know, like contemporary DIY, you know, art that kind of looks like it was like DIY art, mm -hmm. right? And, and there's all sorts of like fun things like that that have emerged from this from this process. So it's, it's very, um, it's very, it's just like with my sort of art history nerd hat on, it's just like intellectually fascinating stuff, but it has a very real tangible result, which means more contemporary artists are getting their art discovered by a broader audience than they would otherwise because 
we're, we're taking the time and, and energy to be to be thoughtful about this. So it's a little bit. It's a. It sounds like it's a mix of stuff that existed sort of in the canon of the art world, stuff that you guys have added to it. Do you have some sort of? Do you have to? You test like is there? Because I would imagine so. You're talking about this. You think about the future and what the movements will be, and then you sort of layer those in, and then at some point I would imagine you sort of look back and you're like, oh, all those were really great ideas, and this one wasn't a really great one. Or something yeah, like that. we do. How do you so test to see whether it's like working? Yeah, that's a really these are great questions. <laughs> um, we do actually, you know, periodically reevaluate the genome. Right, we're not just adding genes to it. Um, you want to curate um, the genome itself. So we actually occasionally we remove genes that we just find in practice are not really getting any any traction or they're not very useful. What's even more common is we'll take. Um, I'm trying to think of a good. God, I haven't sat in on the genome meetings in a while, but I mean, uh, like traction would be like somebody's like clicking on that. Yeah, or, genome just, or, a lot. or even that the genomers, or, or even just that the genomers are actually finding it's like useful. But what's even more common is like taking a concept and realizing that's overly simplistic, and that that there needs to be more nuance. So I think like one, which is, is like realism. It's like real. I remember being part of this like debate. All right, it was like okay, we got realism. Now we have the our historical concept of photorealism and hyperrealism. And then there's just like realism, <laughs> and then there oh, and then there oh, and then there's trompe l'oeil, right? Which is like these French artists that would like the tricking of the eye, which you know they would create these things that looked like totally mm -hmm. real, but like kind of not quite photorealistic. And so you sort of have this interesting trade-off where it's like, well, you have too many concepts, you're consuming, the, you're confusing the consumer, and you're not actually being helpful to the data because now the genomes just have four different concepts they have to apply every time. But you also want to acknowledge like these are art historical periods and labels too, right? So there's like fun little things like that where you might take one gene and then have to split it, you know, into, into more genes. And so the, the so just to like bring it all the way back to a person on the site, um, like if you and I like two pieces of art, the, the, the same, you know, if there's two pieces and we see yeah. them, we both like them. Are we really like, are we likely to like the same things or is it, is that just not that much of an indicator? Yeah. And it's an interesting question. I mean, again, in the early days, you know, we really didn't have much user data. So we're purely making recommendations based on effectively artworks similarity in this sort of high dimensional gene space. Um, you know, now we actually have enough data that we actually are starting to um, explore collaborative filtering uh, on the, at the artist level as a way to help you know, people find things that they like. And um, I think it's, it's uh, I'd say it's too early to say, but my my suspicion is that uh, actually it will be a good uh, predictor. I think just because, you know, people tend to, if you like certain artists in a certain genre, like I think that there is a certain rhyme or reason behind that. So while we all, all, all are, you know, each our own unique snowflakes, I, I do think that if you like very similar things to another group of people, I think you're probably going to like other things right. that they like. That they like to right. Do. I mean, the the over like the general criticism of the art world, <clears throat> right, is that this that the judgment of what's good and not mm -hmm. good is is you know political or, or economical, become, or, and, and it becomes like a bit like just self perpetuating for its own sake, and you kind of end up with like a emperor has no clothes situation. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, definitely. And I, I think what's nice is like I think there's obviously you know as much as we want to be this completely democratic, neutral global platform that's making you know our vision as a world where art is as popular as music, right? You know, I don't think we can pretend to say, hey, we are this perfectly polished mirror and we are in no way propping up, you know, the or perpetuating the existing power structures. I think, you know, of course, like everything in reality has to start somewhere. And I think there is a bit of that going on with Artsy for sure. Um, but I do think ultimately, you know, when you when you create something that's just more open to more people, um, it's not that you're discounting the opinions of the insiders, of the of, of the current sort of power brokers, but what you're doing is you're just adding 
more opinions and influence into the mix. And, and particularly, you're creating a lot, much more diverse uh, mix of opinions. It's, it's not just kind of like the Manhattanite, you know, power, right. you know, largely old white male power brokers. It's a, it's a, it's a more diverse <clears throat> mix of people, generally speaking. And so I think, I think that while in some ways, you know, there are these self-perpetuating cycles uh, of, of kind of taste and quality and, you know, who, who anoints, you know, who, um, I think over time as you broaden that audience, um, you get a much more kind of beautiful and diverse ecosystem of art. And I think, you know, you've really seen this happen in, in music, right? I think, I think music is just such a great analogy for what we're doing. If you look at kind of how a lot of the talent was more studio uh, produced and that still happens today. Um, but you know, increasingly today, you know, you look at people like Justin Bieber, right? Justin Bieber was not studio produced. Like he was really discovered because of YouTube. Mm -hmm. Um, and as much as he plays into all the kind of pop, uh, artist, you know, pop musician tropes, you know, his fundamental talents are undeniable are undeniable because he was really selected from this much broader, more diverse watershed of potential talents. And so I think really um, you're increasingly see this, seeing the same thing happen in arts and, and visual culture. And our goal is to really be an accelerator there. So more artists get discovered and can sustain themselves. So, I mean, I, you know, I touched on the, there's like the insular art world and I would imagine you started this and there's, I would guess there's some excitement or vision around you know, disrupt, I don't want to use the disrupting word, but, you know, changing don't, don't it use the D word. improving it or whatever it might be. Um, and you've clearly been doing that. Uh, how does artsy fit in with the rest of the art world? And, like, what's the reaction? Like, I know that, I mean, a lot, most, I don't know if I shouldn't say most, a lot of the work that's on artsy certainly comes from traditional art yeah. places, museums and galleries and stuff like that. Yeah. So you're clearly working with the traditional that's a, art world. Yeah, that's a really great question. You know, sort of what is Artsy's relationship to the art world? And, you know, it's it's been a very dynamic one. I mean, it's changed dramatically over time. I mean, I think we're very, very lucky that our, you know, we're very fortunate <clears throat> that today, you know, we're in a place where, you know, I, you know, I don't think you can talk to anyone in the established art world at this point who would disagree with the fact that, you know, we have become at this point the primary platform for how art is, you know, put online, discovered online, you know, you know, read about, learned about, ultimately bought and sold um, online. And, you know, there's, you can talk to people there. And I think also the, the numbers speak for themselves. So I think we're kind of at this really <clears throat> exciting point where we've very much been really embraced by the establishment. But, uh, yeah, this is quite the and exact why, opposite. Why of, is that? Is that because you're helping them? <clears throat> at the end of the day, you guys are selling. I mean, at this point, at this point, you're getting not, them sales. Right? At this like, point, I mean, you know, Google Andy Warhol uh -huh. or Jeff Koontz. We're the right. top commercial search result yeah. for every major contemporary artist. You know, and you can Google it in New York. You can Google it in Hong Kong. We're, that, we're the top commercial search results. So you're really not. A when you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. 
Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. The game, uh, frankly speaking, you know, the, the people searching for those artists, the people who are looking to buy their art, um, if you're not on Artsy at this point. Um, and then you look at our content and you look at, you know, how quickly it's growing and you look at the open rates and the share rates. And it's, it's really become not just the most engaging content um, in the art industry, but increasingly just from a lot of different content industries where, um, you know, we're, we're, we're getting a lot of things right there. So I think, you know, just and if you look at like a lot of the tools we provide to our enterprise partners, I mean, they, they just we allow them to run their businesses more efficiently. And if you look at our churn rates, they've gone, you know, our churn rates are now not much higher than the business churn rate of being a gallery. You know, you're almost as likely to, you know, you're you're not much more likely uh, to churn as a business than you are to actually leave the artsy platform. So again, these numbers, th these are really like concrete analytical data points speaking to what we've built and and how embraced that's been by the by the industry. But uh, um, but to and, some extent, it's uh, to some extent like you've forced your way in there through success, right? And that like it, you're you're mentioning the Google thing. It's like, <laughs> and I, I don't mean this in a negative way, yeah. I mean in a positive way that like you guys have done it. You've like realized what you were trying to do, and you'd be crazy to be a gallery and not have your stuff. Yeah, and I, and I think point. that like I think the important thing here is like we've gone as far as we have because of the support of, of our partners and our partners believing in us, right? And a lot of people believing in us because, yeah, just to, to kind of sketch out a little bit, the other end of the extreme spectrum in the early days of Artsy, um, you know, you, you would be crazy to give Artsy a chance <laughs> as a gallery or as an investor. And rightly so, because galleries are trying to run their businesses. And, you know, Artsy is a very new concept. Um, and it's, uh, you know, a risky concept. And in the early days, you know, I remember going to galleries and showing them this website. Nobody I, would buy art. Nobody I, would ever buy art online, <clears throat> no one right? buy art, But, you know, it's funny. Yeah. It wasn't even just no one would buy it. Yeah, the investors all told me no one will ever buy art online. Yeah. Um, and there's some pretty painful videos on the Internet of me pitching investors if you want to go doing some research. I haven't had the courage to watch them in full myself. Um, but, on the, but from the galleries, it was almost like a moral um, – uh, kind yeah. of reaction, which was, you know, by putting art online, it's less valuable. You know, it's, it's sort of, I would say if, if I had to step back and describe at a very high level what Artsy's doing on a cultural level, we're really shifting <clears throat> an industry that I'd say traditionally has a lot of scarcity dynamics driving it. Like, hey, you're not allowed, the reason why this party's cool is because you're not allowed to be inside. Or, you know, the reason why this artwork is, is a good buy is because you can't have it. Or, oh, join the waiting list. Or these three other celebrities bought the same work, a similar work by the same artist. Those are a lot of the more scarcity-driven selling uh, dynamics. And I'd say at a very high level, Artsy has been shifting that um, mindset from a scarcity one into an abundance one. We say people, they're like, oh, why would I ever work with a 22-year-old and his website? I got kicked out of Sony Galleries. They're like, what is this crazy kid? He's telling me about his algorithms. You know, I'm never putting my art on his website. Like, who else do you, you know, they would only join if you already had someone else on board that was a bigger deal than them, right? So you had this real, before you even got to the supply-demand chicken egg, which most startups talking about, we just had a supply chicken egg where no one would join without someone cooler, you know, already on board. And so I think we're very grateful that, you know, there were people that, believed in us really early on. I mean, you know, our, the way we kind of hacked the, uh, hacked the matrix there a bit was, you know, no gallery wanted to join until they had a better gallery on board. Um, and as you went up to better and better galleries, you were less and less likely to even get meetings, let alone get them to want to work with you. And we were very, very fortunate that we, via one of our investor introductions from Josh Kushner, uh, Thrive Capital, and then Wendy Murdoch, um, got introduced to Larry Gagosian, who is the number one gallery dealer in the world in terms of you know how much sale you know how much sales volume they do 
and um, or sales value, I should say, pure dollar amount. They're the biggest in the world by far. And, uh, you know, our pitch to them was, listen, Larry, you're, you're a visionary, you know, when everyone else was closing down galleries, you know, you opened up a bunch more during the recession. He's like 14 galleries around the world. And, um, you know, you might not know how the internet works really well, but you know, it's going online, you know, art is, is, is coming online and we are the horse to bet on in this, in this race. And if we work together and you invest in us, you know, you can be a part of making that revolution happen. And so we're very grateful that people like Larry actually, even though he, you know, at his level of gallery, you know, we couldn't sell anything for them, right? In the early days, like now we're doing really big sales, but in the early days, it's not like we were going to benefit them at all. We were purely going to be a distraction, but he believed in us. He invested Good in us. Good luck for them though too, right? It's like, especially, you know, so a guy kind of gets, so it's like you're saying, the guy, the guy who gets that in the future, this will be a thing. It's an opportunity for him to be like one of the first people to be on board with it. It's a nice, totally. yeah. I mean, I think that that's a great story for people out there generally who are trying to start things and crack into something, which is absolutely sometimes aiming really, really high and trying to like flip one domino, if you will, um, with, you know, and then get somebody like that on board can really, really That's beautifully, open up the door. It's, 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 it's beautifully put. And actually it is like when I talk to a lot of entrepreneurs in New York that are kind of in the earlier stages of getting their business off the ground, especially like in industries that have a lot of incumbent power structures and they get a lot of resistance. I mean, one of my piece of advice is it's kind of counterintuitive. It's like, you know, sometimes if you've got this really, listen, if you can do the whole bottom up thing, go to the smallest guy, case study, take it to the next smallest guy, great that's a that's a well-trod playbook but if you're in a really challenging industry like i think people should really consider the hail mary move of like go straight to the fucking top and just kind of march in there because sometimes the people at the very top they're so they're so successful and they're so confident and they're so frankly bored <laughs> because when you're at the top you're kind of like yep i'm the i'm the top dog you're like everyone around you it's it's like it's like you're just bored because you've won the game so when someone new from a completely different perspective just kind of walks in there and challenges you to like think about something from a totally different perspective and says hey do you want to be a part of this like you could make this thing go from zero to fucking hero and be a part of it it's actually like ironically in a way you're almost more likely to have to get a yes from those people at the very, very top, even though it might seem that they're the hardest ones to yeah. to get at. Yeah. Um, tell me a little bit about, so the, the thing is also you sort of touched on, which I want to talk about is people are used to looking at art in galleries and in museums, right? And mm -hmm. today, now they're used to looking at more of it on screens. Nine years ago, they weren't. Yeah. 20 years ago, they definitely weren't. I would say, I don't know where museums are. I remember not that long ago that you could go to some museums and try and take a picture of the art on the wall. Yeah, they would yeah. come over and like try and stop you from taking a picture, right? Yeah. Um, have people gotten, what do you think about the experience of, like how do you look at that and I think, think about the experience yeah. of looking at it on iPads or doing research? Yeah. Or I'll talk about, I guess, two things there. One is just like the experience of art in the digital age and then like, you know, what's happening to art engagement overall going up or down. I mean, so, you know, experience of art, you know, I often get that question from people like, hey, like, but like, don't people have to see it in person? Like, how's this ever going to work, you know, with people seeing online? I'm like, yeah, it's kind of like dating, you know, like eventually you need to see the person in person. That doesn't mean dating apps aren't a like really helpful thing, yeah. right? And like one third of or 50% of marriages now like come off of dating apps. So it's just like, it's a great way to like discover things. And yeah, the whole point is eventually to go see it in person, right? That's what makes it you know, valuable. So we're, we're all about that offline, online. There's a, there's a beautiful, beautiful yeah. marriage there. Um, do you think that some of the technology that's coming and has come is, is, you know, 
uh, creating like a middle space in between that, right? Because I think it's be, creating a new medium, yeah. right? I think that you know, photography. You know, you know, I, I wrote about this for the for the Wall Street Journal, like on kind of the future of art. Like I say, every artistic medium begins as a functional technology. So you know, if you look at like like you know, we used like draw images to plan you know attacks on you know the buffalo, and then it was like photography was a way to like capture information and then it became an art form and so i think you know look at every technological medium and you know today you look at drones and you look at um 3d printing uh i mean virtual reality oh my god like it's just so exciting to me to think about the art and the expressions can be possible um with vr and you know our artsy has already written a lot of articles about artists experimenting with vr we've even done events uh cool events with like vr artistic experiences so like I think it's I think it's never been a more exciting age for for human expression. And I also think we're gonna see a really interesting merging of expression. I mean, what's really the difference between art and music and video? I mean, and a VR experience. I mean, isn't it really all just like human experience and human expression? So I think that's another really exciting trend here. And I think, you know, to your point of like, you know, people going to museums, I mean, actually museum attendance has never been higher. So I think a really exciting thing is that art is not just a thing for for rich people. It's like, you know, music used to be a thing just for rich people, right? It used to be like, you know, if you're part of the um, you know, the upper class in like Vienna, you know, you would a hundred years ago, you would like attend concerts and no one else would. But, you know, with the radio player, with the record, or with the radio, with the record player, now the internet, music is, you can't even imagine life without music, even for the average, you know, person, as long as they have access to like a smartphone. So I think art is very much inevitably moving that same direction. And we're just seeing it in our data. You know, every city on this planet is inevitably developing an ecosystem of people with disposable income, and then you get artists, then you get galleries, then you get fairs, and then boom, you know, it all it all comes online. So I think it, I think we're heading towards a beautiful world filled with a lot more art, and especially a much more diverse ecosystem of, of art and artists. And so what about uh, people buying art? Are, are more people buying less expensive art? Is that, you know, not... Yeah, I would say, I'd say what we're seeing is just like an increase across every part of the price point spectrum. There's just more people with money and there's more people, you know, like everyone goes through the phase. Like when you when you first make money, it's like, hey, I'm showing I've got money. So it's just like ostentatious stuff, like nice cars or nice boats or, you know, whatever. I mean, not that, I mean, boats are just nice anyway, but the point is, is it, it's about this like conspicuous consumption, which we're all very familiar with. But then you go through this phase where eventually again, you get bored of that. You're like, all right, cool, I get it. Like I've got money, my friends have got money. Okay, I'm kind of bored of that. What's the next? And then that next step is this kind of deeper, emotional even you know for many people art is, is a spiritual you know certainly for my father and being brought up around art by my dad it's art's a very deeply spiritual thing for for us um and i think people really start to crave that deeper connection with expression um and, and with art and so i think you know all of humanity kind of moving in that in that direction and how so tell me about like how are people buying art you're <clears> buying <throat> art on artsy people are still buying galleries like how what kind of so we see a lot of How people start, so, so just art, like just like dating, we, we see a lot of people kind of start the interaction online and then they maybe go to a phone call, maybe they go see it in person, they go visit the fair. Um, I would say increasingly what we're actually seeing though is people actually not just discovering the artwork but really consummating uh, the transaction online. Um, you know, we've been moving into auctions very aggressively recently. We've been putting record, um, and not, I mean, even to talk about as a record, I mean, really gigantic multiples on top of previous numbers of online bidding activity for major, you know, auction houses like recent sales um, with with Phillips, where we're really dramatically increasing the number of people um, bidding, you know, within the global, you know, within the global room. Um, yeah, and are and these so, um, auctions that have like a, phys are they like happening yeah, yeah. in a so physical people, space? Yeah, so there'll be people, there'll be people in house. a physical space um, and a really large percentage of the bids actually into the auction will be coming literally just people with their artsy iPhone apps just hitting the bid button. And then every time it happens, you know, you'll hear the auctioneer be like, a bid from, you know, 24,000 to artsy. Six, 26, it's like, oh my God, it's like, 
like the whole team has just been like flipping out recently as we've like watching these video feeds. Like, yeah, you, know, you can't really buy that kind of right. that kind of advertising. But yeah, suffice it to say, you know the, the behavior, people in the room must like be so pissed, right, or annoyed. Oh uh, yeah, I mean, lose no, to one, no one likes no one likes competition. But I mean, I yeah. think I think the big takeaway is hey, you know, get your download your artsy app. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's my very biased opinion. But I, th- I think the, I think the point is is like the, the behavior is changing dramatically. Like people just you know even if you can afford to like go into London to bid on the work in person, just people are busy. People have a lot going on in their lives. It, and our interface is so easy to use. I mean, my dad's like old school. He bits on tons of auctions. He likes to get on the phone, but he started using the artsy. You know, this guy in his 60s, he's not a techie. He's like really an art guy. So my dad's an art writer. <clears throat> he's just like, your app's just so, it's just so easy to use. You know, I was actually skeptical whether I would use it, you know, because I'm more old school. I like to be on the phone, mm-hmm. but it's just people, people just, they're busy. They have a lot going on. They want things to be as simple as downloading an app and tapping a few buttons and you know, we, we've made the process of not just discovering, learning about art, but really buying and selling art as easy as that, as easy as a, as a few taps, you know, as opposed to going through uh, velvet, velvet rope. Yeah. Um, we'll sort of wrap up here a couple questions. And I would imagine people are thinking about, like, how does Artsy make money? I would imagine there's some commissions on all mm-hmm. the auctions. We get a, we get a, if you sell art on Artsy, yeah, if you sell your art on Artsy, we get a, we get a percentage. If, we, if you buy it, we get a percentage. Um, galleries pay us a monthly fee just to be on the platform have access to all our services and tools and then so there's marketplace business model enterprise business model and our third business is a content business so we have brand partners that come to us and essentially pay us to um, have their you know they, these are essentially the, the Medici if, there, if there's a digital renaissance going on in 2016 um, you know these brands are are effectively becoming the Medici of this sort of modern digital renaissance and so we find a way to incorporate their voice and their brand into the global art dialogue in a very organic you know and these way. are these are brands like you know Clorox or Porsche or like U- like- UBS okay. is the is the major one and then um, there's another couple ones I'm extremely excited about that are coming on a big way, but I, I don't think I can talk about them just yet. But I, I think that the key is that the content, we, you know, we're pioneering, or we're not quite, maybe not pioneering, but we're very much on the cutting edge of this sort of progressive wave in terms of content and how, and the role brands play there. And I think for us, you know, the North Star is that we don't put any content on our site that is not, like our users are not going to love, right? So like, you know, a, a brand may be willing to pay us a lot of money, but if we can't find a way to create content with them that our users are going to love, you know, we're not going to do it. And so like when we did our first uh, collaboration with UBS, um, we created a video with them. We basically, you know, created the, the video um, with, with our team, but you know, their logo was on, was on it. And it was so good. The New York times wrote an article about it with the video right front and center. So it's right. like creating content. That's so good. It's not like an ad in the sidebar that gets deleted by the ad blocker. It's like, no, the New York times will actually like write an article because the content it was about the Venice, the history of the Venice Biennale and this beautiful, you know, beautiful film. So for us, it's really just about creating content that like our users are going to love and are going to engage with. And at this point, we really create a track record with brands where we can say we can take your brand and what you're doing and work with your creative team and we can consistently create content that gets organic traction where people are reading it, people are sharing it with their friends, people are talking about it and really kind of helping people elevate their brand into the realm of high, you know, high art, really the top of sort of the cultural um, pyramid. So it's a really powerful and exciting thing to be bringing these brands into the conversation and really positioning them as the modern day Medici in the cultural landscape. What is the part of the art world you have your like sights set on next? Or what is the thing that artsy you're, you're hoping to achieve in the next few years to, well, you know, I, to, you started off wanting to solve that problem of, 
you couldn't find a site that had yeah. all the artworks on it, which is a pretty big problem. Um, <laughs> what, what is the big problem? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think we, I think honestly, where Artsy is today, as, as, as much as like I think we've now become the de facto platform for the existing art world, I, I, you know, I still think we are teeny, teeny, teeny steps. I mean, the fact that even the fact that we're still using the word art world, like I don't think our job is even close to being done if people even reference the concept of the art world. Like it, it needs to become the world, and it needs to become art. Um, you know, personally, like I, you know, I love art history. Like I can stand in front of a Rothko all day long and just feel like vibrations go through my body. Um, but you know, a lot of the artists that I really love that I'm friends with, they're non-artsy because they are not within the existing art world. I think they're doing things that are so interesting and so innovative, um, but they're kind of they're doing things outside of the existing system, which I think at times can be kind of claustrophobic. Um, I think they're really kind of pioneering and I think today the best way you might categorize these artists is outsider art you know they're not inside the existing art world so I think in many ways in terms of really unlocking the human potential for self-expression creativity artsy is like tapping into you know a teeny fraction of a percent and by the way these are artists in New York City right. if you don't live in New York City and you're an artist how do you how do you how do you become an artist that can actually sell art have a sustainable career if you don't I've talked to people from other parts not even like outside the U.S. they're just from other cities in the U.S. they're like you know, we have no idea how it ever, you know, I have to be a graphic designer or I have to do, you know, help people yeah. with interior decoration to, to pay my bills. They don't even have like a clear avenue for how that could ever be a sustainable practice. So I think really like the potential, you know, whereas if you want to make music, you upload to SoundCloud. Now, getting paid for it is still not trivial, but at least you kind of know what to do. So I think in terms of making that path from like, I'm a creative, I want to express myself all the way into here's how I can actually do that and actually make a living at it and, and have that truly be my dream in life. Oh my God! I think uh, I think we're I think we barely started down that path, but I think the the potential for human creativity and expression that could be unlocked is just going to it's it's going to be like a tidal wave in our in our culture. Carter Cleveland, thank you so much for joining us on the Webby Podcast. Thank you for having me. It's been an honor. Thank you so much to Carter for stopping by. I really feel now like I need to up my art time. If you're interested in visual art, I highly recommend you visit the site, artsy.net, and subscribe to their emails. Our producer is Ben Wagner. Editorial help this week comes from Nicole Ferraro. Show music is Straight West by Casket Club. If you like what you're hearing, be sure to subscribe to the podcast, tell your friends, and leave us a review. We'll see you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.